You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. For a video game that never actually existed, it sure has stirred up quite the controversy. We'll discuss the fascinating urban legend of the Polybius game. There's a war going on in the music industry right now, but it's not over money, and there aren't even really clearly defined sides. It's a war over the volume. She was present at one of the most significant historical events in history and may have accidentally filmed something that could help us clear up some mystery around it. The only problem? No one knows who she is. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, I think every town in America, definitely every small town, has some sort of like urban legend attached to it that you don't really know unless you grew up there. And then when you bring somebody to visit for the first time, you kind of have to explain it to them. You know, you're driving down the street, you're like, oh yeah, this place or this house or whatever. People have always said this about it. Uh, is there anything that kind of comes to mind when you think about growing up in your hometown that kind of stands out as like an urban legend? Well, kind of. But the thing is, I mean, this is probably like the fourth or fifth time I've talked about this throughout the life of the show, but we all know that my favorite urban legend is the Loch Ness Monster. And when I was young, I would come home from school and watch a live feed of Loch Ness thinking I'd see Nessie that I'd be the one to spot the Loch Ness Monster. It's been a while since we talked about it, so I think we do owe it to the listeners to talk about this again. And and if you missed it, Dave said that he literally would come home from school, boot up his computer, and watch a live stream of Loch Ness to try to be the first person to see the Loch Ness Monster. But what I've always thought is hilarious is picturing what you would have done had you actually seen the Loch Ness Monster. Like, would you have called 911 or emailed Loch Ness? I mean, like, what's the next move? Like, no one's going to believe you. Give me the police. (laughs) No, I'd come home from school. Fire this up the chain. I'd come home from school. I'd get a snack, usually some, uh, like a pepperoni roll maybe, or some Doritos. Uh, Get a drink. I'd set up at the computer. Boot up the cameras and away we'd go. Your, your mom would be like, Dave, you want to like maybe join the basketball team or something? <laughs> well, Dave, we're going to talk about an urban legend that I heard about recently that I thought was really interesting. It's out of Portland, Oregon in the 1980s. It's uh, the legend of the Polybius game. Have you ever heard of this uh, kind of obscure thing before? No. No, I haven't. I'm intrigued. Well, the Polybius game was allegedly an arcade game that appeared in a few arcades in Portland, Oregon in the early 1980s. The game was described as a fast-paced vector graphics-based shooter with a unique gameplay mechanic. The game would reportedly cause intense headaches, nausea, and even hallucinations in players who spent too much time on it. Players would also experience vivid nightmares and strange behavior after playing the game. Now, Dave, according to the urban legend, the Polybius game was developed by some shadowy government organization in order to conduct psychological experiments on unsuspecting players. The game would use flashing lights and subliminal messages to manipulate the player's behavior and emotions, all while recording the reactions. 
The legend goes that men in black suits would come and extract the data from the machines and then disappear without a trace. The game was allegedly installed in only a few arcades in the Portland area, with the machines disappearing just as mysteriously as they appeared only after a few weeks of operation. However, Dave, as you would imagine, the Polybius game's existence has never been conclusively proven. No physical evidence has ever surfaced to prove that the game ever existed, and no one has been able to produce a working machine or even a screenshot or photo of the game. The entire story is based on secondhand accounts and hearsay, and many believe that it was simply an urban legend that got out of hand. The internet, Dave, as you would imagine, has only given more life to this rumor as people congregate in online spaces to discuss these distant memories of the game or to confirm each other's suspicions of its existence. But despite the lack of hard evidence, the legend of the Polybius game has endured and it has become this beloved part of video game lore in a way. The story has been featured in numerous video games, TV shows, and movies, and it continues to fascinate gamers and conspiracy theorists to this day. Some people believe that the whole story of the Polybius game was an elaborate hoax perpetuated by arcade owners in Portland in order to drum up business. Others believe that the game was real, but that it was simply some sort of prototype or an experimental game that was never intended for public release. So what could have caused the reported symptoms then in players who claimed to have played the game? Well, one theory is that the game may have been equipped with like a strobe light that flashed at a high frequency, which can cause epileptic seizures or migraines. Another theory is that the game was simply so intense and immersive that players would become disoriented and dizzy, leading to feelings of nausea and vertigo, like if the screen was too bright or if things moved too quickly. However, the psychological manipulation angle remains the most intriguing part of the Polybius game legend. It's not hard to imagine a shadowy government organization using video games to conduct secret experiments on the unwitting public. The fact that the Polybius game was supposedly installed in only a few arcades and then disappeared without a trace, well, that only adds to the mystery and the intrigue. But again, since there's no concrete evidence to support the theory, the Polybius game remains a legend and a testament to this enduring power of urban legends and conspiracy theories. And Dave, as with many urban legends, the story of the Polybius game, it's likely a combination of truth and fiction. While there's no concrete evidence to prove its existence or the government's involvement, the legend has endured for over 30 years, and it shows no signs of fading away. So when I was a kid, my elementary school did a really strange fundraiser where uh, it sold these books of urban legends. So it was like people within the school, students, parents, teachers, whoever, could submit urban legend stories, like ghost stories or whatever, and they'd get published in this book, and then you could buy it. <laughs> you know, most schools most schools just did, like, cookbooks or something. <laughs> yeah, most schools were doing, like, wrapping paper. <laughs> and my school was doing this strange mystery book. And so I remember reading as a kid all these urban legends, and it was a mixture of really terrible ones that kids had written and these really good ones. And you're thinking, wow, like, this person made this up or this person knows this story? And then when I got older, I realized that all the good ones were completely plagiarized. <laughs> all made on like you could look up any of them now and somebody else has printed it multiple times in some other form <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you and I have bonded over a lot of things over the course of our friendship. But one thing we've definitely had a shared love of is music. 
we've played music together. We've listened to a lot of music together. We've even gone to see some of our favorite bands together. You're a bass player. I'm a drummer. We've even been in bands together through the years. Now, my musical journey started when I was like 13 or 14. My friend and I started a, a little band named Matherly after our favorite junior high, uh, junior high teacher, Mr. Matherly. Shout out, Mr. Matherly. <laughs> That's What's so going weird. On? Wow. And I <laughs> name it after him. <laughs> I, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a little weird. It's also cool. Matherly's a cool name. We actually had hats. Had this hats is like the first Matherly time on. anyone has ever told you that it's weird, <laughs> and now you're like, yeah, it is kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, it's a, nah, I think it's more flattering than weird. But anyway, uh, I was actually a Phil Collins-type asset to the band, though, Jay. Played drums and sang lead vocals. Uh, Jay Matherly had such hits as an aforementioned song on this podcast, Dream Girl. Uh, we had a beautiful love song called Picture Perfect Face. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a teenage angsty anthem titled You Can't Control Me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you were really so going how about through you? it. I was, man. I think people could use this. Teens today could use that as an outlet. Uh, but how about you? What began your musical journey? You ever write any songs called maybe You Can't Control Me? Uh, man, I don't, I don't know if I was as angsty as you uh, back then. But yeah, I mean, uh, everybody was playing guitar and starting to learn guitar in middle school. And I saw people playing the bass. And I was like, why does that one have four strings? Why does it look different? And I thought... Well, I want to learn that one because it's different and, you know, nobody else was doing that. And so I started doing it. And this all culminated in me playing a talent show in middle school on just bass, playing a song on just bass at a talent <laughs> show, which was in hindsight, a colossal mistake. Did you sing too? <laughs> no, it was just like, dun, 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 Like just like, just the worst, the absolute worst. Now that you're grown, think how hard the adults in the room, how hard their eyes were rolling in the back of their head. I wish somebody would have stopped me, but nobody got in my way. They just let me go out there. Well, Jay, playing music as kids back in those days, obviously one thing we tried to do is record our songs, and I wish you would have recorded some of your great bass music. But as you know, <laughs> when it comes to recording music, it's, it's complicated. It's a lot harder than it seems. In many ways, I face similar difficulties when I'm editing this podcast. It's hard to get the music levels right. It's especially hard to get the vocals right. And it can easily get too loud or too quiet and disrupt the entire production. And if you felt that way recently, perhaps, when listening to some of your favorite artists and maybe even wondered, is this all in my head? Well, the answer is, it's not. Dubbed a volume war by the recording artist Beck in an interview with NPR, a recent study by scientists at the University of Oldenburg in Germany has found that lead vocals have actually gotten quieter in the final versions of songs. And not just recently, believe it or not. The process has happened slowly over the course of decades. It's almost like, what is it, the frog being boiled in the water? They don't realize that they're actually being boiled until it's too late. To come to this conclusion, scientist Kai Seidenberg and his colleagues analyzed the four highest-ranked songs on the Billboard Top 100 chart from 1946 to 2020, as well as some of the top songs through the years in multiple genres, styles like country, rap, pop, rock, and heavy metal. And what they found, Jay, was that while some genres had more dramatic shifts than others, it was almost universal that the backing band, so the musicians, the drums, guitars, keyboards, they've slowly become more of the focal points of a song, 
while the lead vocals have faded more and more into the background. And when it comes to the artist Beck, well, he would know, because he's been one of the subjects in the study. And for what it's worth, Beck actually likes the shift. The track and the rhythm has to be at the forefront if you want to move people, Beck told NPR. And as soon as you put the vocal up at the forefront, the track loses its energy and its immediacy, and it becomes something else, which is why I don't think it suits jazz or folk. And Jay, while all genres have fallen, pop music has fallen the least. Popular artists like Adele and Beyonce still have songs that feature powerful vocals front and center in the final mix. And so, well, what happens from here? Well, as our collective attention spans get shorter and our interests change, will our music follow suit? Manuela Lopez Restrup from NPR seems to think so. It seems like our listening habits will only continue to evolve with the times, she says, which could mean that sooner than later, we'll only want to listen to 15-second sped-up music clips we've found on TikTok. And Jay, that's really kind of it. A lot of people like music that is just music and quick and short. The vocals just kind of come second. Yeah, it's almost like songs today that are popular are engineered for TikTok. You know, it's not like you engineer a song and then it just happens to get used in a TikTok. It's like when people get into the studio, they're like, how can we get this song so popular that it ends up as a TikTok trend? Because that's where the money is. I remember back with Matherly, we... We'd record, so we'd, we'd write some songs, we'd record them, and when the song was done, it would be like eight minutes. <laughs> and we'd think, You're like the doors. Yeah, we'd think, well, maybe we shouldn't have sang the chorus six times. Yeah. Ah, yeah, let's leave of it. Of course. <laughs> so yeah, we'd have a, our album would be like three hours and ten songs. So Dave, the Loch Ness Monster has come up on this podcast before, and it came up again tonight. And uh, the same is true of the Kennedy assassination. It's been a while since we talked about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, We talked about the missing John F. Kennedy brain, which has just somehow disappeared. It seems seems like a thing like we should know where it is, but (laughs) we did a segment on that a while back. And you revealed on that show that you were forced to watch the raw footage of the Kennedy assassination when you were like 11 or something. It was, yep. <laughs> it was like super traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that teacher still working in the school system? <laughs> uh, that teacher, I don't want to name any names. I actually, <laughs> actually, incredible teacher. Just a misstep there. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that teacher was up for like a national teacher of the year award at one point. Like that's how good of an educator this person is. Yeah, did you um, think about writing like an anonymous email about your your trauma that you carried Before you hand this day? over this award, <laughs> let me let me share Zapruder. I'll say so, one word: Zapruder. <laughs> well, Dave, today we're going to be discussing the mysterious figure associated with the Kennedy assassination, known as the Babushka Lady. Now, I don't know how much you know about Kennedy assassination lore. Um, but uh, is this anything that rings a bell for you, the babushka lady? Your guess at how much I know is probably (laughs) right. (laughs) Well, Dave, the babushka lady is a mysterious figure who was present during the assassination of John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963. She earned this nickname due to the headscarf of babushka that she was wearing, which is pretty common among elderly women, especially from Eastern Europe. And despite being present at one of the most significant events in American history, the babushka lady's identity and motives remain unknown to this day. 
So Dave, on the day of the assassination, countless people were in the area and many recorded the events as they unfolded, like the aforementioned Zapruder. However, the babushka lady's presence was only discovered later when photos and videos of the event were studied in detail. The babushka lady can be seen in several photographs and films standing near the grassy knoll where some witnesses claim to have heard shots fired from. In most footage, she can be seen holding a camera, apparently filming the events. But despite numerous investigations over the years, the identity of the babushka lady has never been established. And although many have claimed to be her, there has never been enough evidence presented to prove her identity. There are several theories about who she could have been, including a Soviet spy, a government agent, a tourist, or even just a bystander who accidentally captured the event on camera. Some have speculated that she was a member of a secret society or that she was somehow involved in the assassination plot. Another mystery surrounding the babushka lady, though, is the fate of the film she was supposedly recording. Some believe that she handed over the film to the FBI or the CIA, while others suggest that her footage was confiscated or just lost. Some conspiracy theorists even suggest that the government was responsible for the babushka lady's disappearance and that she was silenced to prevent her from revealing what she had seen. The FBI even put out statements trying to identify her to supposedly no success in the days following the assassination and still to this day has no credible leads, allegedly. The mystery of the babushka lady remains unsolved to this day, but her story continues to captivate people around the world. The story raises questions about government surveillance, the power of film as evidence, and the role of just ordinary citizens in historical events. The fact that her identity and motives remain unknown also speaks to the enduring power of mystery and intrigue. The Babushka Lady is just a fascinating figure whose presence at one of the most significant events in American history continues to baffle and intrigue people. The numerous theories about her identity and the fate of her film only add to that mystery. So Dave, whether she was a spy, a bystander, or something else entirely, the Babushka Lady remains a symbol of the power of mystery and intrigue. So I looked up some pictures of the Babushka Lady, because obviously I have never heard of this, yeah, and it's fascinating. It looks exactly like you expect her to yeah. look. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, most of the babushka lady photos are on pages that also have photos of the assassination. And so I thought, here we go again. This is my, my trauma. Time. My trauma's coming back. <laughs> but what's funny about it is, as I was very slowly actually scrolling the page, because I didn't want to see anything you know, too, too uh, grotesque, what really bothered me, honestly, was a photo in, a, in an ad, in a pop-up ad. It was this weird, like, mannequin photo thing. Like, I don't know why I thought I wouldn't see this. But it was some strange mannequin ad that said, so real, or it looks so real you can't believe it's fake. And it's this, this mannequin doll that has lifeless eyes. <laughs> it's worse than anything else that could be found on that page. You're like, just show me the assassination. Yeah, show me what... <laughs> the whole video again. I don't want to see that mannequin. My the way I like to picture what happened to the babushka lady, it was just, it was just some lady who had no clue what was going on and filmed it and was like, oh, well that was a really terrible thing, and then just put the camera away and just never showed it to anyone, <laughs> like just, just just and just lived out her life and never even was the wiser that she had this like potentially game changing piece of evidence just sitting in her drawer. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. 
We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. So when you played that talent, <laughs> when you played that talent show, like walk me through what it looked like. Was it you? Like, I, I imagine it was you in a chair, spotlight. I mean, no, it's, the, it's just the worst picture you could imagine. It's me standing, <laughs> base, standing up, strap on, plugged in, little amp, just <laughs> notes. <laughs> little amp. Did people? Did people clap? Uh, like, out of, think, I think it was out, out of, of just like, just yeah, out of pity, pity maybe pity, pity but claps, yeah, yeah.